I want to make this clear. It's not a small thing to leave a faith tradition. It is a huge decision because I owe so much, we both do, Mm -hmm. to the Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Britt Bowlerjack, and for the next few months, we're going to be interviewing millennial pastors who have transitioned out of the Church of the Nazarene. It is my hope and prayer that these stories will be um, the catalyst for beautiful conversations to come about who we are and where we're going and how we can better embody who God is calling us to be. You're not alone. You know, there are so, so, so many of us who are asking questions and trying to figure out what a wholehearted life uh, means. One of my first things is like, if you can stay, you should stay. But I would say if you're going to stay, you have to do the work. That's really all that matters at at the end of the day, because it's all about faithful ministry. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Marissa Koblitz. Welcome to the show. Thanks. So nice to have you. Um, so the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, I think I was born into the Church of the Nazarene. I'm sure you get that answer a lot. My parents met on a jet on the way to Switzerland oh. or NYC, um, 19... 19- I don't know what year that was, 1976 or something. That's amazing. Um, Yeah, they were from the same district and met on the plane. And I don't know exactly the whole story, like reconnected in college. They're both physics majors in college. And Mm. um, but their first their meet cute was on the plane on the way. My mom likes to say when people ask, where'd you meet? She's like, oh, somewhere in the air over Paris. (laughs) That's adorable. I love that story. So, and they, um, so they both are attending Church of the Nazarene. My, my mom's family was Quaker and became Nazarenes when she was a child. So she, um, grew up really, really grew up in the Church of Nazarene. Bible quizzing was huge for her, huge Mm. part of her life. She was one of the standout quizzers on her district Mm. as a high schooler, um, you know, memorized like huge chunks of scripture. And, and also that was a big you know, social connecting point. Uh, my dad also grew up in the church of the Nazarene. My grandma was born in 1925 and attended Olivet for one year, which was, she was the second of 10 children. They're very poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just miraculous that she went to college at all. Um, she felt, she struggled. She felt like it was a place for rich people and mm-hmm. she just culturally felt a disconnect, which I completely understand. It's miraculous that she was there at all. Mm. And so my dad also was very, you know, in the church of the Nazarene world. So they met, um, I attended every general assembly. I remember when I was, oh gosh, I would have been probably 14. I think we drove to San Antonio Mm. from Indiana for that general assembly. A lot of them were in Indianapolis. So growing up in Indiana, it was easy to go. But we made our family vacation to San Antonio that year. And it was, oh my goodness, it was, it was just a blast. I loved General Assembly. We went to District (laughs) Assembly every year. I mean, we did all the stuff. Nazarene teen camp. I went to, I went to children's camp, you know, middle school camp, teen camp, Celebrate Life, which was the regional competition at at all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Bible quizzing, children's quizzing, teen quizzing. I mean, we did everything. We were, my whole life was the church. I, I've thought about that a lot because the world has changed so much, but when I was growing up, the church was absolutely at the center of my life, mm-hmm. whether it was local church district, everything. Um, and so, yeah, so I was a senior in high school trying to decide where to go to college. And I just kind of was like, you know, I'm really familiar with the Olivet campus because I've been there for so many events. So I think college is going to be hard enough of a transition. I think going someplace where I already feel comfortable, have some familiarity, know quite a few people. Mm. Um, and so I went to all of it. And I mean, really, I've just, yeah, I was born into the church of the Nazarene. And I know this is a conversation about um, me having left the church of the Nazarene, but just to say this right up front, I know we talked about this. I haven't actually left the church of the Nazarene. Mm. Um then that has been really hard for me to reconcile that, um, that 
I could not be more Nazarene. I have been absolutely 100% educated by Nazarene Sunday school teachers and mm-hmm. Nazarene institutions, mm-hmm. Olivet, Nazarene Seminary. I could not be more Nazarene. And the fact that I cannot find a place to serve in the Nazar- in the Church of the Nazarene, um, to me, it's not that I left the Church of the Nazarene, it's that the Church left me. Mm-hmm. And that's been, it's taken me a long time to to be able to articulate that. Yeah. Mm. I have a friend who says, she says, she describes her being Nazarene as she describes herself as ethnically Nazarene, Mm. um, that she's culturally Nazarene, like just like someone's born, like they're like Jewish or Irish or whatever. And you don't get to decide like who is Irish or who's not Irish. Like you're born Irish. And she Mm. says, I was born Nazarene and no denominational person can take that away from me. Mm. Which I think is an interesting, I'm not sure how I feel about that because maybe I was born Quaker and that's been my problem (laughs) all along. I don't know, you know, but Mm. I think that's an interesting concept um, of who, how there's this thing right now happening where there's this kind of massive deciding who's in and who's out, but Mm. I could not be more Nazarene. Yeah. Yeah. I, wow. I totally resonate with that. Um, so, so tell me the story of uh, how you ended up in ministry. Uh, so I, after college, after all of it, I moved out to Colorado, which was just this kind of crazy thing that I didn't really at the time realize how crazy it was. I didn't have a job, just moved out with a roommate. Um, I got a job as a school secretary and I was doing that job for a few years and just feeling this kind of discontentment with this is not a career job for me. It's a, you know, kind of entry level position and what is my career Mm. and my roommate and I were meeting um, weekly and having a like reading Eugene Peterson and Mm. I don't know, various spiritual books and I was, I sat down with her one week and I said, you know, I think maybe I should consider being a pastor. I think like people had encouraged me, like you shouldn't, you should be a boss. Like you should be. And I was like, I think if I feel comfortable being a boss in any context, I think I should be a boss of Christians <laughs> and <laughs> which is not necessarily how we typically describe a pastor, but um, yeah. So I was like, I think I should be a boss. And she she had the coolest response. She said, she said three years ago, I remember standing in the kitchen at our apartment and I remember God said to me, Marissa is called to be a pastor, mm. but don't tell her yet. She will come to realize it in her own time. And she said, I've been waiting for three years for you to have this realization. And it was just this incredible like confirmation of, mm. yeah. And it felt like at that point, it felt like my life was, had been this like, puzzle with all the pieces just scattered and I couldn't make sense of the picture like what's the picture supposed to be Mm. and when I kind of accepted this calling to be a pastor it felt like suddenly all the pieces started fitting in all these different components of like like this is such a minor thing but I'm like really good at kickball and I love kickball and like pastors always end up playing kickball (laughs) You know, like you're always just at some like event and people are like, Hey pastor, come play kickball with us. And I'm like, yes, I love kickball. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, they're just all these different, like, I love, like, I love all different age groups. I get along with different age groups really well. I just love learning about people. Mm -hmm. I love hearing their stories. There's just all these different things that I felt like this doesn't fit in to any career that I understand like what use is this? And when I started thinking about what, what life looked like as a pastor, it felt like all of the things that I bring, like began to fit together. Mm. So tell me where you went from there. What happened after that? So I decided, you know, I'm going to sit on this for a year. I'm going to go to, I decided I need to go to seminary because my undergraduate degree um, was not in religion. And I decided I definitely needed an education Mm -hmm. in you know, um, just how to read the Bible. Yeah. And so I decided to sit on it a year on it for a year, read research seminaries, you know, kind of get all of the logistical things into place where I would live all of that. Um, I looked at Iliff school of theology, which is in Denver, um, and kind of dismissed that they were like 
super liberal. They were so liberal. Mm. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I can't be this liberal. There's, I just can't do this. Um, and so I kind of was like, I looked at Fuller, but I'm like, oh, it's so expensive to live in California. I can't afford to live in California. Mm. And so I just like, man, I have just always been fascinated by NTS. I, I really, really wanted to talk to the NTS recruiter when I was a senior at Olivet, but I wasn't in the religion department and they were like, who are you? Why are you talking to us? And I was like, okay, no, you're right. It's crazy. Why would I be talking to you? Mm. And so it felt like this, like really like a very kind of not lifelong, but a long time dream coming true to really go through the process of admissions and acceptance to NTS and Mm. to drive across Kansas and, um, you know, put my roots down and move into a house in Kansas city and Mm. began that, began that educational journey. So, um, then the person who gave me the keys to my house when I arrived was Michael Koblenz. And (laughs) you may notice that I have the same last name as him. Um, and I, he showed me the house and, and gave me the tour. And I was like, wow, the people that remodeled this house did an incredible job, which it turned out was him. Mm. And so I was immediately impressed by his work, um, and kind of really struck up a friendship with him. And, um, let's see, I started in August of 2009 and we got married in March of 2011. So, um, I just fell head over heels in love with him. Um, and then we had a kid and I graduated from seminary in 2013, married and with a baby. And so it was like a lot happened in those yeah, four years. All the things. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I wasn't going to even consider pastoring until uh, we wanted to have at least two kids, like until they started school. Hmm. But I was getting asked to babysit all the time and I hate babysitting. And so I was like, I have to come up with something else to do that gives me an excuse to say no to babysitting. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I volunteered to do, offered to do pulpit supply for the Kansas City District. And we ended up at a church doing, we were the backup interim. Um, But anyway, they really liked us. They loved our family. And they said, would you guys ever think about being our pastors? And Mm. we just, Mike is, this is really good advice that he has given that he's had for us. He says, let's just say no. I mean, let's just say yes until something comes up that we find a need to say no, but otherwise let's just say yes. Mm. And so that's really what we've pursued a lot in our lives is just Like, we'll just say yes and go through this process and see where it leads us. And I mean, they, they were so enthusiastic about us being their pastors. And so we became, became co-pastors. I have to look at my dates here. We became co-pastors in August of 2014 at Countryside and served Mm. there for six years. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so kind of in the the course of the story. Um, I'm curious when the first time was that you thought you may not end up staying in the church of the Nazarene. Yeah. Well, I have thought about that question. Um, one thing that happened when I was at Olivet, I was not in the religion department, but I was taking as many religion classes as I could, um, alongside my degree. And so I was really familiar with the religion department. I was involved in the theology club called Dialogue on campus. Wow, there's a um, theology club? Well, there was at that time. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, there's, <laughs> I'm just gonna tell the story real quick. I was at the library early on, like, you know, my first or second week on campus. And there was this really, really cute boy making copies. And I was <laughs> like... <laughs> I was like, oh, well, what's, what's this event that's going on? And he showed me the flyer that he was copying. And it was for this dialogue theology club. He's like, you should totally come. And I was like, I will be there. <laughs> and so I went and man, it was just this group of people, a, a good group of students just talking about all kinds of ways of thinking about things. And oh my goodness, it was just like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like I'd been hungry my whole life and not known it. And suddenly I was like tasting food for the first time. Mm. This like way of, of thinking and talking and bringing all these different thinkers alongside the scriptures and mm. everything together that I just, 
I was amazed by. And truthfully, I sat by that cute boy the first meeting and then like completely lost interest in him because I was so absorbed by mm. just the content. It was so, it was so good. Anyway, so I love that. Because of that, um, the 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 dialogue theology club and I took I took a lot of religion philosophy I took biblical Greek in college alongside my major wow just like electives <laughs> yeah and your major was physics did. right my major was electrical engineering okay okay yeah yeah I know um like this is not how most people selected their classes but I would just fill in like okay sophomore level engineering classes all right can I take, you know, intro to systematic theology? Can I take like, <laughs> so, which I feel like somebody should have been paying attention and been like, do you have some sort of like calling some ministry? Yeah. Like, but yeah. nobody was whatever, you know, like you <laughs> need to fly under the radar. But the good thing about that is one thing that happened, um, gosh, I think it was my sophomore year. I took intro to philosophy with it was the last taught class he taught at Olivet mm. um, after my, between my sophomore and junior year because there was this huge shakeup in the religion department. Um, the head of the religion department was like demoted. There was a new head brought in to be uh, who's coming out of pastoral ministry was brought in to be the head of the religion department. Mm. Um, I sat and talked with, you know, watched all this happening and and it just became this like extremely kind of, as far as like the ideology of the religion department, the professors were fighting among themselves and, and the students were the ones that suffered. The theology club dialogue basically died. I became the president um, by default my senior year because I was the only underclassman who showed up at the last meeting my junior year mm. um, because it had so just like turned to this like really destructive thing. I mean, the, the meetings, the like professors would go to and argue with each other and the students just lost interest. Um, and so, but we were not my senior year, we were not allowed to meet on campus. We were not a sanctioned club. And so I was like, guys, like, let's fight the system. Like we totally got this. So we would just make a bunch of flyers and they'd take them down and we just put up more <laughs> like, oh, wow. and we met like underground. We met in the basement church they let us like they gave us sanctuary um and so it was this really bizarre situation where Mm -hmm. somehow like talking and questioning theology was outlawed on the campus of all of it wow really really weird um so that is not I didn't consider leaving the church of the Nazarene but I at that point definitely saw how destructive um ideological warfare can be Mm. within our ranks Mm. those kinds of like things where people take a stance on an issue and like in a sense like innocent bystanders are the ones who get harmed and Mm. and the people in power always seem to land on their feet but the people who are just in the ranks end up getting hurt and mm. cast aside. Um, well then kind of tell me from there, like the journey of how you ended up where you are now, which is not quite having left, but. Yeah. So we, um, uh, I, I, I told you the story before my ordination was really not a good situation. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't really want to tell that story again. Okay. Um, but yeah, my ordination, well, I will tell this part. My okay. district superintendent pulled me aside and asked if I had ever asked Jesus in my heart, like pulled me out of the picture mm. to ask me that question. And so everybody was all lined up, posed, and then stopped and just looking at me like what's going on. And mm. I worked really hard to like compose my face in a like posture of nonchalance like this doesn't even bother me it's fine like yeah totally I'm saved like I don't even but inside I was devastated like I was heartbroken (sighs) I mean I I had been a pastor for look at my dates I was ordained um July of 2018 I had been a pastor for four years before I was ordained 
Wow. And this is someone who's asking me if I had ever asked Jesus in my heart after I've been a pastor for four years, mm. which was hard for me because I was like, do you understand how hard this work is? Yeah. Um, why, what, what do you think I could possibly be getting out of it? If there isn't some, I'm going to get emotional. If there isn't some strong sense of God leading me here, there is no possible way that I could sustain this for what, for the money. Like it's Mm. nothing for the prestige. It's nothing, Mm. you know, there is nothing that I'm getting out of this. That isn't like eternal reward. There is no earthly reward for this work. Yeah. And to have someone, you know, say, and also just that lack of faith in the process was disheartening too. Like you have not trusted, you know, multiple years of district inter district license interviews and committees. And you're like calling into question the probably close to a hundred people that have interacted with me Mm. throughout this process. Mm. So that was, that was really disheartening. So my ordination was is not a day that I look back on fondly at all. Oh, I'm so sorry for that for you. I just have to take a minute. So, I mean, pastoring was, so I, let me talk about this. I pastored um, a small rural congregation that I learned about abuse and trauma. um, And I wish I would have known more because every single without exception, every single member of my church was a victim of abuse. And so trying to pastor in that context and, and not only every single member of my church, every person I met Mm. either eventually, like either right when they met me or at some point told me the story of abuse, neglect, whatever, like they had experienced in their life. That community was so, so shaped by trauma and abuse. I mean, I can't even describe, and I think about that, just looking at our country, how many communities are like that? Mm. Um, and so that affected every single aspect of our ministry in that church. Um, this is just a complete moving way ahead. After we left, um, a man in that church who was kind of, we described as the patriarch, was just one of my favorite people, he's so funny um, was a leader. We knew that if he decided, yeah, this is going to happen, then it would happen. And if he was on the fence, then it might not happen. I mean, he was very much the leader of that church, the heart of that church. Mm. Um, after we left, he, um, in February, we got the call that he had committed suicide. And so even like the leaders, the healthy people were, and I knew his story. I mean, he was a victim of abuse throughout his childhood. He, yeah. he had a traumatic childhood. Mm. Um, yeah. And so, so pastoring in that context was unbelievably difficult. Sure. And I mean, we saw really miracles. We saw God work in incredible ways, mm. but we struggled so much. And to struggle so much in the church and then to know that the church leaders were questioning, like, even my salvation was like, I've, sorry, I'm I'm so emotional. I felt so alone in the world. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Pastoring was was the loneliest job. I just, I prayed and prayed and prayed. I spent hours in prayer and just had this sense of, I have a really strong theology of the wilderness. Mm. I know what it is to be in the wilderness. And I had this sense of God is so present in the wilderness. God, we're so aware of God's provision in the wilderness because there is no other provision. Yeah. And I, I felt that and, and really reflecting, you know, we're a a year past, um, you know, a little over a year past leaving Mike and I have identified these places that God provided for us miraculously. Mm. Um, and that even at the time we had a hard time seeing it because we we're so just in the midst of everything that now we're like, wow, God provided this and God provided this. Yeah. Um, 
but to know that we would go to church with people who were so informed by trauma Mm. and so they were they were faithful you know they were serving god wholeheartedly but that trauma was such a part of how they interacted yeah um and so to know that we were going to church in a place where you know we were ministering in a place that required us to give so much of ourselves Mm. um but then also to know that on the other side going to district level events like we also were our integrity was questioned our character was questioned um to be so yeah to be so unbelievably unsupported was was hard i mean it was yeah it was it was so hard um i also i mentioned my son was born in 2012 at the end of 2012 Um, And then my daughter was born when I started pastoring, I was pregnant with her. I was about six months pregnant. And so she was born soon after we um, started pastoring and um, we moved, we were driving out from Kansas city. We moved out when she was um, four weeks old, which was crazy to move with a four week old. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But what we didn't realize, actually, this just happened this, just this week, my son is diagnosed with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, we've suspected that for probably close to a year and been pursuing like a screening evaluation and all of that. Um, so on top of pastoring in this really difficult circumstance, I also, you know, now I know had for a large part of it, like a one and a three-year-old, a two and a four-year-old with the older one having autism. Mm -hmm. And, and so I was dealing with, with an older, you know, my son wasn't meeting developmental milestones Mm -hmm. and then having, you know, the care of a baby and then a toddler, like in addition to my older son, not meeting developmental milestones Mm -hmm. and to do that. I mean, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have childcare at our church. Um, (laughs) there's one Sunday when I was preaching and I was watching my daughter, she was probably, I don't know, two or three at the time. She was like on the front row drawing with crayons on the um, cloth chairs oh. and nobody was really paying attention to her. And mm-hmm. I was just sitting there like preaching, like watching her, like, and I was like, I'm going to lose my mind right now. I'm so stressed oh. out about this. Like those mm-hmm. crayons are not going to come out. Like people are going to yeah. be like so frustrated about that. And mm-hmm. like, I don't want to just stop the service. There's nothing to do with her anywhere. Way. There's no place to take her. I mean, there's no, there's no childcare. Oh. <laughs> Um, and, and I, one of the, this is, my story is just all over the place. One of the, one of the breaking points for me was in 2016 when Donald Trump started running for president, Mm. um, because the language of my congregation shifted to begin, become suddenly more crude and vulgar and misogynistic. They followed the public discourse and I remember one person in my congregation said, yeah, this is how we talk like on the floor of the factory anyway. Like now we're allowed to talk like this in public. Mm. But I was just like, but this is not how you used to talk at yeah. church. You know, yeah. there used to be there used to be this like public discourse, this way that we spoke to each other, mm. that now we have this national leader who has just brought the level of our public discourse, you know, to this vulgarity and, and, and misogyny. And yeah. Um, and so I struggled throughout his campaign, Donald Trump's campaign, because that began to take hold of my congregation. Mm. But on the day that he was elected, um, I woke up that morning, you know, finding out that he had been elected and I was heartbroken. I mean, I was, I was bereft. And I remember watching Daniel Tiger with my kids and, um, there's a song that said, you know, it's okay to be sad sometimes. And I was like, oh my goodness. Yes. It's okay to be sad. And I just started, my kids are like, mama, what's happening? I'm like, I'll explain when you're older. (laughs) It's so complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was just, oh my goodness, I was devastated that we had this leader who just had, 
who spoke in these ways that I couldn't let my children watch the president of our country speak Mm. because what he said was so vulgar and offensive that I didn't want them to follow his speech patterns. Mm. And on Sunday morning, I went to church and I had been preaching lots of sermons of countercultural lifestyle. Like, you know, we're strangers, we're aliens, we're out of step with the world. Mm. And I continued preaching that unknowing that when I would go to church that Sunday, like, well, you know, it's hard to be Christians. What I didn't realize is that I was coming from a place of lament. Mm. I did not realize that when I walked into my church that Sunday, there would be an air of victory and joy and triumph pervading Mm. everything. Mm. And I was so shocked to realize that I was completely out of sync with my congregation. And I struggled with that for a long time. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I think, um, and this is kind of moving forward. Um, I guess I'll jump to this. In 2020, when the pandemic hit, so two things were happening. Mm-hmm. One, I had um, March, 2020, everything shut down. Yeah. I had a three month old. Mm. Um, and so one thing that happened is even in, she was born December 17th of 2019 when she was born, I realized like, I realized that this whole group of people wanted me to take care of them, but this baby, her life depended on me taking care of her. Mm. And it was this very, very startling thing. I had already raised my second child, like in the pulpit. Mm. And it was a very startling thing. I was like, I can't do this again. I cannot ban my child from coming to me. Like when I'm up front, I cannot mm-hmm. do the Sunday morning thing where I'm at church for five hours and my child is not allowed to see me for five hours. Mm-hmm. I just, I was like, I can't do this again. I cannot, I cannot take care of a group of people who are so in need of me caring for them. Mm-hmm. Um, when I have a child who actually literally needs me to care for her in order mm-hmm. to live. Mm. so that was that's powerful yeah and that was um so that was that was kind of beginning to take hold Mm. and then in March 2020 everything shut down and we met with our church board around late March early April Mm -hmm. to decide how to move forward because right at first everything shut down there's this idea like okay everything's gonna shut down for two weeks this will magically go away we'll open back up so everybody's like okay we can be shut down for two weeks it's fine Yeah. yeah Well, then when it became apparent that that's not what was going to happen, all of a sudden we had to make, you know, everybody had to start making decisions. Mm -hmm. And I met with my church board and I read to them from, um, I think it was Romans. I think it was, surely it must have been first Corinthians though. Um, I have my Bible right here. Um, I read to them from, I should have looked this up ahead of time. Okay. Um, I read to them 1 Corinthians 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 9. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Mm. And so I read that verse to them. I just said this context, you know, like like our job as Christians in the world is to lay down our rights on behalf of the vulnerable. Mm. Um, And so then we went on to talk about, like, what does that mean? How do we care for the vulnerable? What does that look like? Yeah. One of my board members said said, he said, you know, actually my concern is my rights. That's what's important to me. And I said, I said, Hey, look, I literally just read to you from the Bible, yeah. you know, like, like, and it has this, that exact language, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the week. And he's like, well, I don't know about that. I just know that my rights is what matters to me. Mm-hmm. And so to realize that we had pastored this congregation for five years at that six years at that point, almost five and a half, and that I was sacrificing the needs of, you know, a special needs child, my middle child, my baby to care for this congregation. When I had a board member who was saying, I don't care what the Bible has to say. That's the point when I was done. And when I was doing that with a district who was questioning my salvation, that's when I was done. It was yeah. like, I have, there is nobody who's in line with me. Mm. There's nobody on my team. Oh, which, you know, 
God says to Elijah, like, Elijah, you're being a little bit overdramatic. There are actually quite a few people. Mm -hmm. Um, God says to Paul in Corinth, he says, hey, keep on speaking publicly. I have many people in the city. I mean, I've clung to those verses. There are always people who, when you speak the gospel, there are always people who are hearing it and who it has value. And those people may be hard to see at times. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, I just was like, I cannot pastor this church anymore. Yeah. So another thing that happened in 2020, you may remember, (laughs) are you familiar with 2020? (laughs) Aren't Um, we all? (laughs) Yeah. Is um, of course, George Floyd and, Mm. you know, the murder of George Floyd and all the protests um, and Black Lives Matter, which I have found Twitter to be a a good place of connection and, and solidarity. I feel like I see people on Twitter. I'm like, yes, that's what I, yes, you are saying what I'm thinking. Thank you so much. Um, And so I was already familiar with Black Lives Matter, you know, which really came out of Ferguson, um, you know, years earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, But then with the murder of George Floyd, it, you know, really, really leapt into public consciousness and a really new way. Um, one thing that I struggled with is there was a pastor on my district who pastored and on, on a Sunday morning, he made some statements about his stance on racism and black lives matter. And mm. they were so racist. Aww. It wasn't even, it wasn't also, it was also how much he didn't know that what he was saying was racist. He was so disconnected from the conversation that he didn't even know that it would be taken, you know, wrongly. Mm. Um, and I watched this person, you know, try to defend his statements and, um, all of these statements had zero consequence on his standing in the church of the Nazarene. Mm. On the other hand, um, a pastor that I kind of knew a little bit, um, started to ask the question, I have, um, gay people attending my church. How do I deal with this? Yeah. And he, at first was, people were in discussion with him, but then something happened and he said, I sat down and talked to him about his whole story. Um, He said, I don't know what happened. He said, but there's some kind of shift. And the conversation went from a conversation to people saying, um, um, you're out of line with the church of the Nazarene. You need to surrender your credentials. Mm. And he said, wasn't there a process? Like, Mm. isn't there a thing that like happens, you know? And he said, and so he said, I don't, I'm not going to just surrender my credentials. And I don't think I am out of line in the church of the Nazarene. And I want to say this like really clearly, we have a process to change the manual. Mm -hmm. It is understood that that as many as three quarters of people can disagree with the content of the manual and still be Nazarenes. We understand that things change over time, that perspectives change. Mm -hmm. You can be fully a Nazarene and disagree with the content of the manual. And if that were not the case, we would have a static manual that never changed because no one would ever disagree with it. Mm. But we have a manual that has a process for changing. We understand that there is room for change and and disagreement. Yeah. And so um, he finally did agree to surrender his credentials. But he said, I didn't leave because of the question of LGBT inclusion in the church. I left because I realized that the way the church functioned did not allow for people to have different opinions, Mm. did not allow for people to question anything. Mm. Yeah. So seeing on the one hand, this pastor who is blatantly racist and there are zero consequences and this other pastor who's asking questions and is asked to surrender his credentials, Mm. it made me ask the question, do I want to be aligned with this group of people? Yeah. So that also happened in 2020. Yeah. Um, so, so kind of tell me the, the rest of the story, what happened since then? Well, we, um, so actually really incredible. Mm. Um, one unforeseen consequence of the pandemic is that the value of our house, like 
shot through the roof. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, our house was, was not really considered within driving distance of Kansas city, but then mm-hmm. when all the traffic decreased, like suddenly people could expand, essentially the suburbs expanded, like the driving distance expanded. Mm-hmm. And so we had, a, I mean, and it's honestly, it's an incredible God thing that we ever got this house. Mm-hmm. Um, that and my husband's like just relentless research of real estate. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, we had, we bought this house, um, in 2000, um, really late 2014, December, 2014, right before my daughter was born, we signed the papers. Uh, no, actually, I think she was like a week old when we signed the papers. Wow. Um, and we bought it from the bank. I'd been foreclosed, major fixer upper. Mm. Uh, we put a lot of money into it, did a lot of work. And when it was all said and done, I mean, it was this beautiful log cabin on 10 acres, had a little mm. pond in front. I mean, it was just picture perfect. And we did a bunch of landscaping and mm. built a back deck, built a bathroom in the basement. And we did a lot of stuff. Um, and so we bought it at a relatively low price because of the foreclosure and because of the shape that it was in and sold it for, we sold it for $60,000 over our asking price, Wow, which was already generating a profit for us yeah. and to even go beyond that. Um, and so, and my husband's parents were living with us and we didn't know, we knew we were moving to Southern Indiana, be close to my parents and they would want to move back to Northern Indiana where they were from. And we didn't know where they were going to go. And the week that we were deciding to move, they got word that an apartment had opened up that they could move into. Wow. And so, um, so my husband was basically forced to resign from his job. Mm. Um, and so as soon as that happened, I gave my notice at the church mm. and we just, you know, kind of put all the things into place. And we, we listed our house on a Wednesday and it sold with that offer on a Friday. Whoa. I mean, it was nuts. It was, yeah. everything happened so fast. Mm. Um, and one amazing gift, knowing that we were moving, you know, states away, um, one of their things was, was if there are any need of repairs, we'll take care of that. Mm-hmm. And which was an amazing gift that knowing that we wouldn't have to be calling back, trying to work with a contractor to do yeah. some little minor repair that, that they would just take care of it. Um, it's awesome. And so, so yeah, so we, when we put all the things into place, um, well, I say when we made the decision, all the things fell into place in this mm-hmm. really miraculous way. Mm-hmm. And it just felt so reassuring to feel like God's presence was still with us. And I, I wrestled with that. Um, like us leaving the ministry was asked the question, was that us leaving, you know, this theology that we have, was that us leaving God's first choice of will, were we moving to God's plan B for our lives? You know, that's, Mm. I feel like I've heard that message <laughs> you know like like well if you know if you don't say yes then you lose out on God's perfect will for your life and mm. I feel like I heard plenty of preachers say no that's not how it works but I still was like oh no we're losing out on God's plan a for our lives mm. um but the other thing when we moved here it has taken me a long time to even feel like I am allowed to read the bible mm. um I felt like like I had screwed up like I had failed so miserably that I wasn't qualified to read the Bible anymore. Mm. Um, and so for, I don't know, there's, a, we watched um, one Sunday morning, we watched the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is a pretty incredible movie. Um, actually, I mean, it's based on the book and it's the book that's incredible, but it really has this like really incredible theology of God working amongst the people that the church said that weren't allowed in church and God is working in their lives. Yeah. And so for, I don't even know how long my kids got so sick of it, like a month or two months, every single night after supper, I played the song from that movie, God help the outcasts. Mm. And that was the only prayer I prayed for a long time. Mm. I'm going to read the words of this song. So it says, I don't know if you can hear me or if you're even there. I don't know if you'll listen to a humble prayer. They tell me I'm just an outcast. I shouldn't speak to you. Still, I see your face and wonder, were you an outcast too? Mm -hmm. So, um, 
and yeah, God help the outcasts hungry from birth, show them the mercy they don't find on earth. The lost and forgotten, they look to you still. God help the outcasts or nobody will. Mm. And that was, that was the only prayer I prayed for probably two months. And it, it just felt like, it felt like it was safe because it was a Disney movie mm. instead of um, instead of something laden with all this like baggage of church and um, and so it felt safe and I could but it also just so expressed my heart that I was like like there are people so hurting and broken in our world whether it's minorities especially my heart is heavy for um, LGBT um, community, like especially teenagers, there's such high rates of depression and suicide. Um, you know, these are the outcasts. God help yeah. the outcasts. Yeah. Um, and they're just, and, and also the church that I pastor, these victims of trauma that are mm-hmm. just overlooked and underserved. Um, and I read, um, a book by Diane Langberg. And she said that trauma is the new mission field. Mm. And so it felt like that prayer, just like that song just so captured the prayer of my heart that I, God help them. Mm. I don't know how to help them. I don't know that being a pastor was helping them. It seemed like it was participating in systems that, um, upheld their oppression. Mm. Um, and I just was like, I don't know what, how to live my life in a way that is in service to people, to the vulnerable and marginalized people, but God help them. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to read to you, um, a, a prayer that I, um, just to be really honest, I did not know where I stood on the issue of gay marriage back you know, whenever it was legalized back. Um, I, the main thing I felt was there are plenty of straight couples that the church was marrying that probably should not be married. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I didn't, I felt like it was a decision I never had to make. Nobody was coming to me, asking me to marry them. In my six years as a pastor, I performed funerals and never weddings. I mean, that was just the context of where I was. And so I was like, well, I don't, I don't even have to have an opinion about this. Nobody is asking me to make a decision. Yeah. But when I saw these lines being drawn, um, and at this point, when we left pastoring, um, one of the first questions that was asked at any, um, pastoral interview, um, on our district was, are you opposed to gay marriage? Mm-hmm. And if the answer wasn't wholeheartedly, yes, I'm opposed to it. You were out of condition or out of, out of the running for um, even receiving a position on the district. Mm-hmm. So I knew that we could never leave our church because, mm-hmm. because my answer wasn't, was I'm not sure where I stand on this issue. I could never pastor another church on our district. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Anyway, so I was, so yeah, so I was not, I didn't have strong feelings about it, but then once all these like lines were being drawn, I was like, well, okay, if we have to pick a side, Mm. um, I'm going to be on the side of compassion. Yeah. I'm going to be on the side of saying, this is a really vulnerable population Mm. that, um, the church has a great opportunity to embody the love of Jesus by caring Mm. for them. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to do. And so if my choices are either firmly opposed to gay marriage or wholeheartedly affirming, Mm. I'm going to choose affirming, I guess. Mm. And I really have just come to that place and I'm not looking back um, because it seems like our country is so polarized that there's only two choices. So Mm. if that's a choice I have to make, okay, fine. I'll be affirming. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really in the business of like, ranking sin and deciding which sin is worse than other sin. And I'm not really in the business of judging, like of deciding like who is worthy of heaven and who's not. And Mm -hmm. so, okay, I'll just, and there's actually, I mean, that's not without a lot of 
thought. I mean, I say that somewhat lightheartedly. And so I was corresponding with a professor from NTS um, via email and asking him, you know, kind of thinking about some of these issues. Mm. And he basically said, you know, while you're not sure, it's probably good that you step back from pastoral ministry until you get this sorted out. Mm. And I was like, wow, so you would rather the church lose my voice as a pastor then have me among your ranks and be wanting to have a conversation about this. That was startling to me. So I developed this like image in my mind because I realized that what happened, what that meant is that every person who had questions was banished. Every person that was uncertain was banished. Mm -hmm. And so I developed this image in my mind of this like glass walled conference room and So there's this table of people, they're all sitting around, mostly white men in suits. And they're like, do we agree on this? Like, yeah, I think we're all in agreement. Yeah, I don't even know anybody who has any other opinions. Yeah, we all agree. I've read all the sources. I've considered all the books and they all agree with me. And meanwhile, outside of this room, it's like the soundproof glass wall. There's all these people like banging on the window, like, no, there's so many other sources. There's so many other voices. There's so many other people that are speaking, you know, that are writing like, Keegan Osinski just published her book, Queering Wesley, you know, that are doing this work of like a theological understanding of, of queerness, of, of what it means to be gay and, and how that works in the body of Christ. There's so many people writing and thinking and talking and discussing. And I like, wow, they get to just live in this glass, this, you know, the soundproof room where they're comfortable, like everybody in here agrees. And so I developed this picture of like, there's so many other voices speaking. Mm. And that's true for like womanism and like lots of these theologies that are outside of anything that, you know, a lot of these like white male leaders are reading. And then I was like, hold on a second, instead of banging on these walls, trying to get my voice to be heard, maybe I just need to look to my right and to my left and see who's outside the room with me. Mm. And that has been really freeing um, because I, I, the book I want to read to you is, is a rhythm of prayer by Sarah Bessie. Okay. Um, that has been really freeing to realize um, there's like a whole lot of us. There's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of us who are just struggling to figure out like, how do we live our faith when these structures that are supposed to be enabling us to live our faith, it turns out are like really racist and misogynistic. And I mean, we, I feel like I've been blessed. The church of the Nazarene is really not as bad as like a lot of organizations, Mm. but like, it's also being infiltrated by the same voices that are leading the charge in those other organizations. So, um, anyway, so, so I wanted to read this prayer for you from Sarah Bessie's book. It's called for all the so-called lost. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a little bit long, but She says, um, this is scripture. And what woman, if she had 10 coins and lost one, wouldn't light a lamp and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it. That's Luke 15, eight. Mm. Her prayer, Jesus, I am lost. They told me to follow you. And I did to the edges, to the margins, to the humble and grieving, to the oppressed and slandered, to where you always showed you were. Mm. And when I called back to them to show with joy what I had found, to celebrate what had been restored, they called me lost instead. Mm. They called me wanderer. They called me stubborn. They called me black sheep. It was supposed to be all green pastures and still waters. Mm. It was supposed to be all restored souls, but all I could taste were my unattended doubts and all that bubbled up were troubled waters of unanswered questions. And for asking them, the shepherd said my soul was wrong. Mm. They call me sinner. They call me wasteful. They call me prodigal and Jesus. I do not know how to tell them the riches. They say I stole when I left the house of God turned out to be pig slop. I do not know how to tell them how like you, I shared meals with sex workers and it was a feast of unending grace. Mm-hmm. Jesus today. I heard how pennies can't be made of copper anymore because the amount of copper needed to make a penny is more expensive than a penny is worth. And Lord, I feel it. They asked me to be something smaller, to be pressed down into something worthless, to be crushed into something worthless. 
Jesus, I have tried. I've tried to be small enough. I have tried to be shiny. I've tried to be worthy. But every time I press myself with the imprint of someone else's expectations, it misses the mark and I am left off center. So here I am, Lord, a quarter clinking around in the bottom of the divine washing machine, a nickel dropped under the car seat, ground into a gritty floor, a penny slipping from a pocket rolled into a corner under the bed where dust mites and bobby pins are my only fellow believers. Jesus, I need to see the broom in your hands. I want to hear you turning over each empty pitcher and shaking out every neatly folded sheet. I need to see your belly pressed against the floor and your dark eyes peering into my own darkness. You know darkness, Lord. It doesn't scare you. You made it. So it goes on. Um, Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Oh, here's the last. Jesus, in this congregation of the forgotten corner, I am finding I am not alone. We are the church of the still lost in the lost and found. So when you come, bring a satchel ready to collect what longs for home. Jesus, for every sheep and coin and child called lost, may you pull us close and whisper found. Mm. Mm. That's powerful. So there are these, there's this life outside and that's what I'm clinging to. I feel very disentered. Um, my life, this church was the center of my life and it's not anymore. And I don't know what the center of my life is now, mm. but I feel like there's community there. There's life on the other side. Mm. Um, one thing I've wanted to ask and, uh, is how might the Church of the Nazarene have, have made a more hospitable place for you, for your ministry in the, in the denomination? Yeah, um, one thing that I feel like is, you know, a, an easy answer would be like, oh, like more, you know, like more diverse theology or something like that. But actually one of the things is um, I was extremely under-resourced. Mm. Um, I was pastoring a congregation in a community that was under-resourced as far as access to mental health care professionals, um, access to wealth, access to healthcare professionals in general. Mm. And one thing that I see happening in our churches is that the answer to pastors who are under-resourced is to be bivocational pastors which actually leaves the community communities even further under-resourced mm. um, because if I'd have taken a job in that community, I wouldn't have been able to do funerals. I wouldn't have been able to be with people and, you know, th going through surgery and um, situations like that. So taking away um, one of the resources that remains in those communities. I mean, a lot of communities, the last thing left is the church and the school. Yeah. The businesses leave, the professional leaves, and the church and the school are left. Mm. And so the answer of bivocational ministers, which means taking the pastor away from serving the community, I, I feel like that's one thing that's probably not talked about enough, mm. um, is that one way that the church could have been more hospitable and I think should really look at is this disproportionate thing where well-resourced communities have well-resourced churches and well-resourced pastoral staffs mm. and under-resourced communities have under-resourced churches and under-resourced pastors mm. and that disparity just like increases with each passing year mm. so one of the things that um and I don't I I don't want to like sing the praises of the Methodist church because I'm sure that people within that system have all kinds of issues with it, mm. but is the guaranteed salary for pastors. That means that um, once you ordained and, and placed into a position, in the Methodist church, you're not scrambling, trying to figure out how to put enough money, put together enough money to pay for healthcare and to pay for, you know, these like necessities. Mm. And one of the things that the guaranteed salary does, and this is actually on their website is it says, um, pastors are free to preach the gospel without fearing the consequences um, to their career. Mm. Um, and so it takes away this like um, sense of like, 
you know, for me, like if I lost my job as a pastor, I could not have found another job in that community. There were no other jobs. Yeah. And so there's a sense of like fear, like I can't lose this job. I can't say things that will cause me to lose my job. Mm. Um, If I lose my job, we'll lose our house. We'll lose, you know. And so that's another component of that is like, like, yeah, it's just, just this very like practical, tangible, like resourcing pastors Mm. so that, um, like there isn't this like mental health crisis of I have to preach the right thing. I cannot lose my job. I am living in fear of not having enough money. I have to, you know, even I have to persuade people to get through the doors of my church and to give offerings so that I have enough money to put food on my table. Yeah. That's a really bad situation. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Thank you for sharing that. Um, So lastly, I was just curious if you have any words of wisdom or encouragement for people who are still pastoring to the church of the Nazarene, what would you want to say to, to them, to us? Um, I have thought a lot about this. So uh, I was watching uh, the documentary series on Netflix about Colin Kaepernick. And Mm -hmm. he says this interesting thing. He says, um, how you begin is not how you end up. And he's kind of talking about, he's, he's talking about his choice not to play baseball because what he saw in baseball was this pressure to conform to a certain identity. Mm. And he felt this sense of like, I accept this paycheck in this position, but then I compromise, um, in this area, I compromise Mm. in this and you make all these little tiny compromises until you become a version of yourself that you no longer recognize. Mm. Um, And so that is, I think, the word of encouragement that I want to give the people who are in the Church of the Nazarene is don't accept this mythology that says, I don't want to fight this battle today because I can be here and be a voice and live to fight a battle another day. Mm fight the battle that is before you Mm. and trust God to be with you and sustain you through it. And it may seem scary. It may seem like the consequences are, um, unbearable or too much, but God is with you. I mean, Jesus, you know, fought the battles and it led him to the cross and it led to crucifixion, but it led to resurrection. We are people who don't have to fear crucifixion. Mm. Oh, and I don't know if that is encouragement, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I just be someone that, that you can say to your kids, you know, that you can say, like, I lived according to these choices and these principles and you know, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, Mm. that you can say to your kids, that you can say to people who look up to you, follow me as I follow Christ. Mm. Mm. That's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, and, and thank you for your pastoral ministry, your service to, to the kingdom, to the gospel, to the church, the Nazarene. I, I'm grateful, um, that you are a colleague of, of mine. So, so thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, um, haven't had a lot of people who are grateful to be my colleague in recent days. (laughs) Mm, mm. Well, I'm here. So yeah, so thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, Marissa. Yep, thank you for having me. Yeah.
Since we love millennials so much on this podcast, we thought it would be appropriate to promote our fellow millennial authors. Here's one now. Hey, Millennial Pastor Podcast listeners, I'm Ryan Fasani, a millennial pastor, a farmer, and an author in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a new book titled Walking Trees. It's the first book in the Changing Everything series, which chronicles my long and often humorous journey of reconstruction. Have you ever tried to make a fire with wet driftwood on the beach, considered how disgusting it is to be spat on in the face, or thought about breaking into a home in broad daylight? Have you ever considered how bizarre it is for slaves to manage millions in assets, or thought through the political implications of robbing highly valued commodities from an empire? Walking Trees and Other Short Stories That Changed Everything I Believe About Jesus is my humble attempt to begin answering all the unanswered questions I've carried with me about classic Sunday school stories. Each chapter is full of insights from a pilgrim unwilling to skirt obstacles or take shortcuts. In the end, my childhood faith gives way to the fresh, radical, creative, world-changing ministry and message of Jesus. There is a link in the description if you would like to buy their book. Thank you for supporting your local millennial pastor slash author. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Britt Bullerjack. Our editor is Caden Barksdale, and original music was done by Andrew Jones. This podcast is part of the Millennial Pastor Podcasting Network. For more podcasts like it, please visit themillennialpastor.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can join us on the next episode of the Millennial Pastor Podcast.